First John chapter four. First John chapter four. We've been going through First John and learning about how we can go deeper with Jesus. That's the whole reason John wrote this letter. We'll cover verses eleven through sixteen today in chapter four. But as you're finding chapter four, have you ever wondered why so many songs are written about belonging? I mean, songwriters explore the topic because every human being is looking to belong somewhere. We're all looking to find a group of people or a place where we can finally say, I'm home. I belong here. And so they sing, come home, or you belong here, or I don't feel like I belong anywhere, or I still haven't found what I'm looking for. So where do we belong? John tells us in these next few verses that God's love is where we belong. God's love is the place we must make our home. You know, sometimes people ask me, say, if you had any one topic that you could talk about, what would it be? And it would be God's love. It would be, you know, the concept of grace. And so as we get to these verses, it's a a very exciting section of Scripture because it was life-changing for me when I first you know, was learning these verses, and I hope it will be for you. Well, in verse 11, John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, no man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us, and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. John starts off with this address that he just keeps doing over and over again, beloved. John is hammering home the point again and again and again. God loves you a lot. God's people love you a lot. You are greatly loved. And he hammers this point home over and over again because the enemy lies and says, neither of those things are true. Nobody loves you and God doesn't love you. And then he brings his evidence to support his argument. He'll whisper in your ear and say, well, look at how that person treated you, or no one sees you, or no one cares about you. No one wants you around, and God doesn't want you around either. But that's never the truth. While you were God's enemy, he sent the most precious person into the world to rescue you. That's what we learned about last week in verse 10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And not only is it the enemy's lies untrue as it concerns God's love, it's not true concerning others' love for you. While your brothers and sisters in Christ are not perfect like the Lord, and while they do fail you, you are loved. You are missed when you're gone, and people do care. There are people out there praying for you who you don't even remember their name. But they said hi to you once, and they remembered your name. They saw the hurt in your eyes or the stress that you were under, and they've been going to the throne of God for you day after day after day. You see, the enemy tries to get us to presume that we know everything, that we've got all the facts. Don't presume that you know everything. That's how the enemy tricks us. You see, we're to look at things, and that's how life is. Most people, they figure, I've got all, I know, I know what's going on, and I'm going to respond accordingly, but we're not. We're called to do something different than that. We're called to not lean on our own understanding. And so, John, after he reminds us how greatly loved we are, He reminds us how we're to love one another. He says, Beloved, you who are greatly loved by God, 
if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. The word if, remember the New Testament was not written in English, it was written in a a different language, uh, Koine Greek, common Greek of the day. And the way that that language was written is that it had four different ways you could say an if-then statement. And this is the first way, it's the way of assumed reality. In fact, you could usually, when it's that first class clause, you can usually translate the word if-since. So he says, beloved, since God so loved us, if God so loved us, which it's assumed reality, it's real that he did. So since God has so loved us, in this way loved us, or what way did God love us? Everything we learned in verses 7 through 10 last week. Since God sent his son for us, since Jesus died to reconcile us to God, since we have eternal life because of all God did for us, because of that, we ought also to love one another. We have an obligation We are in debt to keep on loving is what that word means, to be in the habit of loving one another. You see, none of us can ever say, well, I've met God's quota of love for you. I've loved you enough today. We we chuckle, of course, because no one would ever say that. We would never do that like in an argument, like we'd never go, you know what, I've loved you enough today, I'm done. But let's put it into more practical terms. 1 Corinthians 13. I've been patient enough with you today. I'm done being patient with you. I've been kind enough to you today. I'm done being kind. I've taken too much of your junk today, and I haven't been rude back. I'm done not being rude. Right? Now it makes a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? We do use that phrase, or we do think that thought. I've met my quota of loving you today. But none of us can ever say that because love, what's the end of 1 Corinthians? Love never fails, right? It bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things. It endures all things. It keeps going because our benefactor is our example. He never failed. He gave up everything for us. There never came a point where Jesus said, I've met my love quota for you today. I'm not going to the cross. Now, we covered this earlier in 1 John, but it, it's important to repeat it. We love others like this, the way God loved us. We love others like this not because we owe them our love, but because we owe God our love. That's the debt we owe. And so we don't choose to love a brother or sister in Christ because, well, they deserve it. We choose to love them because Jesus deserves it. Now, John anticipates that some of his readers will say, well, I realize what the Lord did for me, and I'm so very grateful for His love. I I tell Him how thankful I am in prayer and, and and when I sing, and I try to follow Him, I try to obey Him. But you can't equate that to loving other people. Me loving God back doesn't have anything to do with loving other people. I like God. I don't like other people. But that's the point, isn't it? Love isn't about liking someone. It's not about someone else being likable. That's not why God loved us. And so John clarifies that loving others is the most tangible way that we can love God back in the way he loved us. Why? Look, no man has seen God at any time. Verse 12, no man has seen God at any time. The word has seen here, it means to observe something 
with continuity over time. It means to be a spectator. It's like, you know, I can go and read the box score of a game, the Yankee game last night, or I can be at the game and there's a vast difference between those two things. I could look and go and say, oh man, Garrett Cole got, got absolutely slaughtered. He's out after three innings, gave up six runs. Or I can go, man, he just, I could tell he didn't have the stuff as soon as he got on the mound. Every pitch, it just looked like he was laboring. There's a difference between spectating something and just getting a glimpse. People in history have caught glimpses of God, but no human being has been able to sit and watch Him enough so that they could say, okay, I got Him figured out. No reporter has been granted access to heaven. And you know, can I just spend a month with you, walk around with you, see what you do, see what you're like, so I can report and I can say, I've got the scoop on God. The Bible tells us that only Jesus knows the Father fully. In John 1.18, it says, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He has declared Him. God had to be revealed to us. Love had to be revealed to us. And that's where Jesus came into the picture. That word declared in John 1.28, the Son of God has declared Him. Jesus declared the Father to us. That's where we get our word exegesis from. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, you probably heard that word. It's not a word that society tends to roll around, but we use because it describes what I'm doing right now. Exegesis is explaining what God's words mean so that we can understand them better. Well, Jesus exegeted the Father. He explained God to us so that we could better understand Him. When I converse with people, I share the gospel with them, it bothers people that God says, well, this is how you love me. I don't want anybody telling me how to love somebody, how I have to love them. Sometimes I'll hear them say, well, why does he get to decide how I love him? It's really simple. It's because you don't know him. You don't know him. You've never met him. And you're fallen and you're selfish. How could you expect to know how to love Him? People say, what's the thought that counts? Okay, well, what if your thoughts are selfish? Or what if they're wicked thoughts? Does that count? No, of course not. The very notion that I can love God how I want shows that I don't love Him. It means I love myself because love isn't about what I want. Maybe, think of it this way, maybe you would understand this if you, you have like maybe a crazy uncle, and he's not really connected to the family. <laughs> it's not really somebody you raised your hand. <laughs> he's not really connected to the family. He kind of shows up out of the blue at birthday parties every once in a while or a holiday, and you're like, oh, uncle so-and-so is here. Wow, that's kind of a shocker. It would be like that crazy uncle who's never around, doesn't really know you, but he shows up when he, he's got a present for your kid, or maybe when you were young, he had a present for you, and he's so excited. He's like, you're going to love this. And when you open it up, you're like, what is this? Because he doesn't know you. That's, we're the crazy uncle. <laughs> like, it's about us. We don't know him. So how could we possibly intuitively know how to love him? how does God want us to love Him? Well, think about this. Is, there, is it even possible for me to love God like He loves me? Because the way God loved me is He came and died for my sins. So how, 
If God has never sinned against me, God has never done anything, how can I love him in this way? You can't. Unless you do what John says here. You love his family. You see, John did get to observe God in the flesh. And after all that time with Jesus, he said, well, God wants us to display our love for him in this way, sacrificially, unconditionally. He wants us to do it by loving his family. I said, I love God unconditionally. That's great. He never did anything wrong. You don't have to love him unconditionally. He's always doing the right thing. You're the one that has to be loved unconditionally. So how do we, in this way, the same way he loved us, love him back? He tells us, you're going to display your love for me that way by loving my family. And so he says in verse 12, after no man has seen God any time, he says, but if we love one another, if we should love one another. It's a different if-then statement. It's not a, a clause of rea- assumed reality. It's a clause of greater probability. The expectation is, well, this is what Christians should do, but sometimes we don't. And so the thought is, but if we should do that, well, then God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. If we should keep on loving one another, then God is making his home in us and his love, in other words, the same kind of love that he has, the love that corresponds to his nature, that unconditional love, that 1 Corinthians 13 love, well, then it's perfected in us. We'll get to that perfected in a second. But John is basically saying here is that if you're one of those who's loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, well, that proves you love God, that your relationship with him is real. Because just as I don't love God my own way, this kind of love for others also isn't my own way. This kind of love I have for others is like His, sacrificial. It's selfless in attitude and behavior. And that kind of love, of course, it's only supernatural. It only comes from God living in us and through us. But as we play our part, as we submit to the work that God is doing in us to make us more like Him, we become perfected, which means complete in His love. His love becomes complete in us. You see, we can't see God. We can't see Him, but He leaves us a testimony of His unseen presence so that we can know that we are His. And the proof of His unseen presence is our visible display of love for one another. John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. Remember the story in Luke 5? Verse 23, the, some friends, they had a, a, a friend of theirs who was a paralyzed man, and they couldn't get to Jesus into the building, and so they decided to destroy a roof. So they, they pull off all this stuff on the roof, and then they lower their friend down. And they lower their friend down there, and they, we did it. We got him to Jesus. And what does Jesus say when he sees this guy being lowered down? He goes, hey, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, all four of those guys up there are probably thinking, that's not why we destroyed a roof. We want you to heal our buddy. You've been healing everybody that comes to you. We destroyed a roof so you could get up and walk. But as Jesus said, your sins be forgiven you. It says that there were others around there, the the religious leaders, and it says they snickered. They're like, this guy blasphemes. Only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus turned to them after he said those words because he's not just trying to help the paralyzed guy. He cares about all of us. And he says, let me ask you a question. 
What's easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins be forgiven you? Or is it easier to say, hey man, get up and walk. You're healed. Take your mat with you as you go. The answer is obvious. Anybody can say your sins be forgiven you, right? Anybody can say those words. But he says this, he goes, but that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And I'm not just anybody. That I can say the words, your sins be forgiven you. He turns to the man and he says, rise up, take your mat, and go for a walk. And then he does. Why did I bring that up? Well, which is easier to do? Sing a praise song at church? Or be patient with another person? Sing a praise song at church, tell Jesus you love him, or be kind to one of his sons or daughters? Which is easier to do? Tell Jesus you love him when you're praying, or to believe the best and endure the worst with another person? It's a no-brainer, right? Anybody can say, I love you, Jesus. It's much easier to say, I love you, Jesus. We should say, I love you, Jesus. It's one of the reasons we sing. It's one of the reasons we pray. But anyone can say the words. Only someone who has the living God living inside of them can love other people like God has loved us. And so in verse 13, he says, hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us. This is how we know that we are making our home in him and he has made his home in us. And it's that he has given us of his spirit. God has given us something. The word here, given, is in the perfect tense, which means it's, it's a permanent giving. It's given to stay forever. It's not just borrow. It's not just stay for a while. It's something to give to stay. And he has given us from out of his spirit. He has given us something supernatural, something from out of his own very person that now will become part of us. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. That's where it all starts. There's lots of other things there, but it starts with love. I can claim an apple tree. A tree is an apple tree, but if it sprouts pears, it's not an apple tree no matter how strongly I protest. And I can tell you this, with authority because I looked it up. Pears never come from apple trees and apples never come from pear trees. There is a crossbreed between a pear and an apple, but it's still a pear apple tree. It doesn't bring forth pears or apples. It brings forth pear apples. And no, they don't call it papples. <laughs> I knew my wife would giggle at that one. Only a believer can have the Holy Spirit. And having the Holy Spirit is proof that I'm indeed in Christ. Since love is the, a fruit of the Holy Spirit, my love for others is observable evidence that I have the Holy Spirit. Now, loving others is not the only evidence of my relationship with God. Truth is also evidence of my relationship with God, that I'm walking in truth. Because the Spirit's work of love in us never compromises truth. And truth is not up for grabs. It is definitive. It's not my truth and your truth. There's no such thing. Truth is definitive. The very nature of the word truth in the Bible, it means that which is real, that which is genuine, all right? I can try to tell you that this is a fluffy bunny. It is not. It's a piece of wood that's been carved in the shape of a pulpit. That's what it really is. Truth is not up for grabs because while we may not have interacted with God, 
in a spectator way. Others did interact with God in a physical way that they could spectate Him. Look at verse 14. John says, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in Him and He in God. That phrase we, it means as for us. John's talking about him and the other apostles. He goes, we have spectated. We have spectated God. The gospels give an account of their observations of God the Son walking in their midst. That makes them qualified to tell us what God is like and what God wants because they saw it with their eyes and they heard it with their ears. And so John, he says, as for us, We did get to spectate God for three and a half years. And he goes, and we testify, do testify, which means we we just keep on, we keep on sharing this story. We keep on telling others our story of what we saw, of what we heard. And what's the story? That the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Here John tells us three very important things about God. Number one, he tells us that there are multiple members of the Godhead. When we look at this here, he says there's a father and there's a son. And then when we combine it with verse 13, it mentions he has given us of his spirit. So from these things here, John is telling us that God, what is God like? Well, he's a triune being. People will get frustrated sometimes and go, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. You're right. It's an English word. No English words are in the Bible. We use the word Trinity or triune God to explain what the Bible teaches. There's lots of words I might use in our language to explain what the Bible teaches. doesn't make it wrong. So first, he shows us that God is a triune being. Second, he shows us about God is that God the Son became a man, the incarnation. John, if you've been coming for our study of 1 John, he probably sounds like a broken record. Because he keeps talking about this, that God sent the Son, God sent the Son. But when God urges His servants to repeat something, it's because we are very likely to get it wrong. And people get who Jesus is wrong a lot. The Gnostics back then, the very first Christian cult, they taught that Jesus and the Christ were two different entities, and they got together at Jesus' baptism, and then they separated again when Jesus was on the cross. But John declares that Jesus is God the Son come in the flesh. And the third thing that we learn about God is that God sent the Son, and the Son came into our world in the role of a Savior. Now, we call Jesus the Savior of the world, and it's not that big a deal. I mean, no one's going to be mad at us for saying that. I mean, some might, but generally we're not, we're not offending our culture and our government when we say something like that. But back then, Savior of the world was a title taken by every Roman emperor. If you read, it'll say, Emperor Caesar, blah, 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 Savior of the world. Emperor Tiberius or Augustus, you know, blah, 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 Savior of the world. That was their title. They were considered to be divinities, gods in the flesh, the only hope for the world. Well, that, of course, created a problem for Christians because Christians refused to worship statues to the emperor or to declare that the emperor was the Savior of the world. Christians would say Jesus alone is God in the flesh, and the Father appointed Jesus alone to, be the, to take the role of the Savior of the world. So, 
Who Jesus is and the role Jesus played in history is crucial to defining Christianity. If Jesus is not who John says he is and he did not do what John said he did, then there is no point to Christianity. No point. People say, I don't, I don't believe what the Bible says that Jesus said, and I don't believe what the Bible says Jesus did. I'm like, well, why do you call yourself a Christian? I mean, go be something else. Because where you find all these things out about Jesus is from the Bible. Which is why what we believe about Jesus proves we're born again. Look at verse 15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, well, God dwells in him, and he in God. The word whosoever there it literally means it's an add-on to the previous verse. This is my testimony, that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And whosoever means which, if one should confess that, Jesus is the Son of God, well, then God dwells in Him and He in God. God sent Jesus to rescue the entire world. All you have to do is confess that. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. But the concept here is this whosoever, is that Jesus' death on the cross paid the price for everyone who had ever lived or who ever will live. Now, that's what all the whosoevers mean. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that what? Whosoever should believe in Him. It's anyone, anyone. That's reinforced all throughout Scripture. We already saw in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for also the sins of the whole world. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, it says, this is why we labor and suffer reproach. This is why we work so hard to get the gospel out. This is why we go, th go through all the difficult things we go through to get the gospel out, because we trust in the living God who's the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. This is why John says, I do testify that's why he kept telling others what he had seen and what he had heard when he spectated God the Son. Because anyone, anyone that heard him that should confess Jesus would experience the benefits of Christ's purchase. You never have to wonder, does God want to save my horrible coworker? The answer is yes. Did Jesus die for my family member? Yes. Is salvation available for my neighbor? The answer is always yes. So go tell them the good news. Because anyone can be saved if they'll confess Jesus. What does it mean to confess Jesus? Well, the word confess, at its most basic meaning, it means to say the same thing that someone else is declaring. But it also goes deeper than that. It means to identify with the one that you're confessing. Confession means agreeing with what John says about Jesus and then identifying with Jesus instead of identifying with yourself. What does that look like? Well, it's something like this. Jesus, you're the son, God the Son, sent into the world to rescue me from my sins. And so I decide to no longer profess my own goodness, that I don't need a Savior. I recognize who you are, and I ask you to save me, and I choose to follow you from now on. You can word it all sorts of ways. Maybe the prayer you prayed was not exactly like that, but that's the gist of it. That's the, the main idea, repentance from sin and faith toward Christ, that I recognize I'm not a good person, I need a Savior, and I turn to Jesus as my Savior, and I follow Him for the rest of my life. The old chorus puts it in the most simplest terms, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back.
But that is your confession. Well, guess what? You're part of the team. God makes His home in you. That's what it means at the end here. Verse 15, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, well, God makes His home in, in that person, and He makes His home in God. You have this relationship with the Lord. You're His forever. Verse 16, and we have known and believe the love that God has to us. God is love. He that dwells in love dwells in God and God in Him. Here's the big, the big answer to the unspoken question of why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? Why are we here today? Why do we pray? Why do we obey God? Why do we do what we do? Well, we have known and believed the love that God has to us. The phrase we, the word we, means as for us. John, in verse 14, he was talking about him and the apostles. In verse 15, it's anyone who believes their message. Well, now he puts all that in one big group. If you're a believer here today, John's talking about you. Whether you're a brand new believer, you've been walking with Jesus for 80 years, he's talking about us. All of us have something in common here. We have known and believed the love that God has to us. We have known, which means we have come to know through our experience, and we still know by experience. We have believed. It means we have come to trust, and we still trust. What have we known? What have we experienced? What do we, what do we trust? The love that God has to us means in union with us. Listen, this, if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. This is the foundational truth at the base of every genuine believer. We have experienced an actual loving relationship with God, and we trust in His love. It's that simple. We have experienced a genuine loving relationship with God, and we trust in His love. Because that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? I believe God loves me, and that Jesus died for me. And so, in light of that, I will be kind to my coworkers. And so I will forgive my spouse. And so I will obey his command to put others before myself. And so I will trust him even though I don't see him working. And so I will believe his promises. And so I will deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him whatever the cost. Which means every time we're wrestling with one of God's commands or with one of God's promises, it means at the heart, some part of me is saying, I don't trust that God loves me. Every command that we're wrestling with or every promise of God we're wrestling to trust Him for, when we're wrestling, at the heart of me, some part of me is saying, I don't trust that God loves me. I remember being in Israel and I was on the top of Mount Carmel and you're up there, and of course, and you got a Bible study because that on Elijah, because that's the place where the big showdown happened, right? You know, you got the prophets of Baal, and then Elisha, and they both make an altar, and who, whichever one fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice, he is God. And everybody goes, "That's a good, good way to do it." And of course, it's no contest because Baal's not real. No one's listening when his priests and prophets pray. And Elijah praise, and the fire comes down, and the people all say, the Lord, He is God. We choose the Lord. <laughs> No-brainer, good choice. 
Elijah had told him, you, how long are you going to halt between two opinions? You got to make a choice. Are you going to trust him or not? Are you going to trust that he loves you, that he cares about you, that his commands make sense that that, because he loves you? Or are you going to just keep bouncing around? So I'm up in here, I'm here in this study about how much God loves, how he calls us near, he wants us to see him working. Elijah is so gentle with the people, even though it's, they've been so far from God. And it's all over, the Lord's just dealing with me. He's like, Will, I don't want you to go down this mountain still holding on to this thing in your life. I want you to let it go. And I'm wrestling with God because I'm up there thinking, but God, if I leave it here, when I go back home, I'm going to be disappointed or bummed out or I feel like I'm missing out or whatever it might be. And the Lord's like, no, I love you. I've got your best in mind. Just leave it here. Lay it down. And what I realized on that hilltop was that, Lord, I, I don't trust that you love me. And that, that's a silly thing. That, that, there's no reason for me not to trust that you love me. And that's eventually where the wrestling stopped, when I decided to say, Lord, I know you love me. I've experienced this love with you. I know you love me. And so I'm going to lay this down and leave it here. And I haven't missed it. Every rejection of the gospel, every rejection of God's standard stems from an internal belief that says, I don't trust God loves me. Or, I don't care if God loves me. But this relationship that we have with God It's the very heart of Christianity because God is love. John keeps repeating it because we must understand it. God's very nature is this agape, this unconditional devotion that was displayed in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That's who he is. We can't relate to him any other way not have a meaningful relationship with Him. And so as a result, the person that's dwelling in love, that's made their home in love, where they've settled into that, they've stopped arguing with God about, about whether he, he loves them, they learn to trust in His love, and they make their home in His love, that person dwells in God and God in Him. You have this close relationship. And so... When we ask the question, why do I do what I do? Or why don't I do what I don't do? I don't not get drunk or not leave my spouse because Christians aren't supposed to do that. I don't do those things because God loves me and I love him back. Because I know him and how much of a blessing he's been to me and I want to be a blessing to him. And the person who makes their home in love loving God, loving others, that person, they're the real deal. You're a a genuine believer. You pass all the tests. So, he leaves us this morning with a few important questions. Why do you call yourself a Christian? I mean, the answer may seem obvious, but it probably bears pondering in your heart. Why do you call yourself a Christian? Why do you do what you do, or why do you not do what you don't do? Do you identify with Jesus 
Or do you identify with yourself or something about yourself? I realize what I'm going to say now is, is a sensitive topic given our, our cultural climate. But I'm going to say it because I care about you and, and just based on my own experience. I am convinced, and what I'm observing as someone who gets to talk to a lot of people, I'm convinced that there is so much discussion on the topic of identity today because we are absolutely miserable trying to find identity inside ourselves. We're trying to define things that don't need to be explored because my identity is to be Christ, not me. I don't need to figure out who I am. I need to know who he is. And my fulfillment in life, it must come from knowing that I am my beloved's and he is mine, that this is where I belong. Any other search for fulfillment will result in a failure to thrive in a human being's life. You will keep searching and searching and searching and searching and never find. You see, we make a mistake. Human beings are not just our bodies, nor are we just our souls. We are spiritual beings as well. And the only fulfillment for our spiritual being is found in a loving relationship with the Lord. In Matthew 16, 25, Jesus said those powerful and famous words, he who seeks to save his life will what? You're gonna end up losing it. But whosoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. That word life there, it's not talking about this body. It's not talking about this flesh. It's suke, which is where we get our word psyche from. It's referring to our soul. The soul is our seat of emotions, feelings, desires, affections, aversions. If you try to rescue your soul in your own way, you will wither because you're not the savior of the world. You're not capable of rescuing your soul. It's not your job to try to rescue your soul. You say, my soul is at, not at ease, it's at dis-ease. My soul is restless. I don't feel like I belong anywhere. I don't, I don't, I don't understand who I am. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do. Okay, you're not the savior of the world you're not the one who's gonna find the answer to that. You're not capable of rescuing your own soul. But here's the good news, it's why we call it the gospel. Jesus is capable. He is God come in the flesh, and Jesus loves you. He gave up everything to give you spiritual life so that your soul could be rescued. And so if you want to experience that rescue, you must not put your soul or your body in the top position of priority in life. Your spirit needs to be in that spot. And you do that by losing the self-life and by trusting Jesus and his love for you. And so as the band comes up to close us out in song, my last question for you is, what are you going to do with John's testimony? Have you seen God? The answer is no. The answer is no. But someone did.
will you believe his testimony? That's what it comes down to. I mean, do I believe John or not? Do I believe myself instead? Do I believe that I have better information, better access to facts, better wisdom and understanding than the guy who walked with Jesus for three and a half years? If you believe that, I can't help you. <laughs> no one can because you're not being honest with yourself. Will you trust the God that he has met with and walked with and he's sharing with you? Will you trust him and his love for you? Will you trust God's love for you and will you find satisfaction in loving him back? Let's all stand. I grew up in a legalistic church environment I went to school in a place that it was the only place in America where child abuse was legalized as the nuns could do whatever they wanted to you. I had no understanding of a God who loved me. I mean, I understood the idea, oh, God, God loves you and God is love, but I didn't understand what that meant. I always related to God on a performance basis. And then I, when I got saved, we went to a church that great church, but definitely was way more focused on like what we do for God and not what He did for us. And so while I understood the concept, well, yeah, God loves me. Of course He loves me. He's God. I, I still related to God very much on a performance basis. And so I always didn't think I was worthy for God. I didn't believe that, that I could come to Him. I always felt like I needed to reach some type of standard before I could pray or talk to Him or read, you know, read my Bible or serve Him and be used by Him. I remember going off to school, and First John was one of the first books we studied. And I never had assurance of my salvation, but after going through First John and seeing how much God loved me and what it meant to be in Christ, for the very first time I had that assurance of salvation and things I had battled for years just started little bit by little bit to fall away. It's not for nothing that Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. Make your home there because that's, that's where we belong. That's the place that we can come and say, I found it. I'm home. So Lord, my prayer is that no one leaves here today without being home. Whether they're a believer or not a believer, Lord, either way that they would not leave here with that restlessness. Lord, you know if there are, there are some here, they just need to repent. They need to, to stop doing their own thing and trust that you love them, to stop looking to try to find happiness and fulfillment and belonging in what they're doing. They just need to turn around and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you finally. But Lord, you know some of us, we've just, the enemy's had his way with us. and We've just made so many bad choices and we're so miserable. Where we've looked everywhere and we're just never finding satisfaction. Lord, I pray that everyone today would leave here keeping themselves in your love. That we would all just be aware of what you did for us. And Lord, that we receive that. So as we worship you now to close out, Lord, please, if our hearts have been hard or our minds have been unfocused, focus us in as we sing as we sing of your love and what you do in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.